Hello, I'm James Hurst. Welcome to BFBS SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. Europe's biggest war for decades still rages in Ukraine, but is it distracting us from a bigger threat? At MI6, China has overtaken terrorism as the single biggest effort. And the head of the Navy says China is a bigger threat than Russia. I'm afraid that we will wake up one day, perhaps in 10 to 20 years, and we'll realize that actually we won't be able to face China militarily. Already they will have built their own shield. Also this week, we joined troops from 19 nations on NATO's biggest artillery exercise. Software enables us to plug all our digital fires in together so that messages can go really quickly from the sensor to the shooter with the minimum delay. And Johnny Mercer tells us why, a year after quitting as Veterans Minister, he's gone back to the job, but this time at the Cabinet table. Whether it's health, housing or employment, you have to be at the top table contributing to that debate. The long-term military threat from China is greater than that from Russia. This is according to the head of the Royal Navy. America's top military officer has warned the Chinese military have become significantly more aggressive. And the head of MI6, Richard Moore, revealed this to the Aspen Security Forum. We now devote more effort to China than any other single subject. So, for example, it has just moved past uh, counterterrorism in terms of our mission. And that feels like a very big uh, moment post 9-11, post 7-7 in London. And how to handle China has also become part of the battleground between Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak as they vie to become Prime Minister. So... Why the sudden slew of public warnings and concern about China? Has Ukraine taken our eye off the ball? And how can we stop military aggression from Beijing? Well, we'll look for answers to those in a moment with someone who teaches UK military leaders about China. But first, let's talk to BFBS reporter Sean Grezchek to get a sense of China's military capability and therefore the potential threat. Hi, Sean. Hi, James. So just give us some numbers that will give us a sense of how China's military capability compares with the US and the UK. Well, if we start with the biggest beasts of military power, aircraft carriers, the US has nearly four times as many uh, with 11 of them compared to three Chinese carriers. The UK, of course, has two. Although on pure number of ships, China's navy is about 50% bigger than America's. A lot of them are pretty small. On important vessels like nuclear-powered submarines, cruisers and destroyers, though, the US is well ahead. But compare personnel, China's 2 million is about 50% more than the US and is 13 times the number of UK active military personnel. Now, the United States has 954 combat-capable aircraft, which is nearly twice as many as China. However, it's that long-term picture, James, that's worrying the UK and the US. They expect Chinese Navy ships to increase by nearly 40% over the next few years. And of course, that costs. China is thought to be the world's second biggest defence spender at the moment, but the US still spends three times what China does on defence. So in terms of hardware capability, the US clearly outguns China. But but the real concern right now is, say, the possibility of China attacking or trying to annex its neighbour, Taiwan. So how do their militaries compare? 
Well, James, it's definitely a case of David versus Goliath when you look at those numbers. Taiwan only has just under 170,000 active personnel. China has 14 times more submarines than Taiwan does and more than twice the number of frigates. Again, Taiwan has nowhere near as many combat-capable aircraft. China has five times as many as they do. Now, Taiwan has proposed a slightly higher defence budget for 2022, unsurprisingly, including extra money to buy F-16V combat aircraft. Uh, and the message coming from America is that China is using this military capability more. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff saying that China's military is becoming significantly more aggressive. So what are they actually doing? Well, sticking with Taiwan as an example, China has increased the number of military flights into Taiwan's air defence identification zone at sea. Uh, since mid-2020, they've flown a small number of fighters and bombers over parts uh, of that area almost daily. Meanwhile, the Japanese have raised concerns that their air self-defence force were scrambled against foreign aircraft more than a thousand times in 2021. And out of those figures, more than 700 of those involved Chinese aircraft. And when you read the latest assessment of the Chinese by the Americans, they're highlighting concerns right across the board because of this surge in military activity, all of course focused to meet their 2049 goal. Uh, yes, 2049 when President Xi wants China to be called what he calls a, a world-class military capable of uh, fighting and winning wars. Uh, thank you for that, Sean. Let's bring in Professor of Defence Studies, Michael Clark. Uh, Mike, uh, what Sean and I were comparing there was conventional forces. How does China compare as a nuclear power? Because let's add another warning that's come in the last few days from the UK's National Security Advisor, Sir Stephen Lovegrove, about the potential risks of nuclear conflict with China. Yes. Uh, I mean, China's nuclear forces, of course, are a closely guarded secret, but it was always assumed that they had about the same number of warheads as Britain or France or Israel. But it's fairly clear now, and it's become clear in the last 12 months, that that figure of about 250 to 350 is going to be increased to about 1,000 by 2030. Now, again, that's still a long way behind America and Russia. But with a thousand warheads, you can play that superpower deterrence game between the three of them, not just the sort of minimal deterrence that we in Britain and France tries to play. So how concerned should we be about the potential military threat of China. Dr. Zanellioni teaches courses on China to senior military officers at the Joint Services and Staff College. Uh, I would say that China is not ready yet to be that sort of global military power. We are talking something that is quite far down the line. On the one hand, we see China being very assertive and potentially capable of winning a short-term conflict in the Western Pacific. However, beyond the Malacca Strait, when we look across the Indian Ocean or the Gulf or Eastern Africa, China's military power fades away because China still lacks a logistical network, forward base. It doesn't have that strategic depth. So in a way, we should be reassured that we're talking about something that is far down, down the line, perhaps 10 to 20 years at least. But right now, the chairman of the US Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, says the Chinese military and the capability that it's, it's got has become significantly more and noticeably more aggressive. What does Chinese military aggression right now look like? 
they've certainly become more aggressive since 2010, but they continue to act in a sub-threshold fashion. So they've been weaponizing the South China Sea, those atolls and, and islands that remain contested. They are exerting pressure by flying close to uh, Taiwan's airspace. However, the Chinese are very risk-averse if we want to go back to the comparison with the Russians. And so I don't think they're looking at anything beyond the sub-threshold. I think they want to test our resilience. They want to test our patience. They also want to deter us because the East China Sea and the South China Sea are contested areas. But we want to deter them. As you say, they're trying to test us. So what's the best way to address that Chinese military activity to perhaps try and get it wound back in? So the the emphasis in recent years has been on freedom of navigation operations. It seems that they don't really work because exactly because China operates sub-threshold. I would say that because China is not um, overtly assertive. And because China's strategy, China's foreign policy is mostly one of leveraging its economic power, I think our emphasis should be, first of all, on making sure that countries in the Asia-Pacific do not fall into an economic and diplomatic sphere of influence of China. For example, China, to make the next step, to become top-notch great power, military power, it needs ports, it needs overseas bases. But if we can manage to convince Pakistan, the United Arab Emirates, Cambodia, and other countries that those bases should not be offered, that would be a great victory for us, and that means that we don't have to intervene militarily. You say that things like freedom of navigation patrols don't really do much, that that these should be sort of diplomatic responses. I mean, we did have the UK's carrier strike group sailing close to China last year. You've got the the Royal Navy vessels HMS Spey and HMS Tamer based in the Pacific, so in, in the region. And the argument there is you've got to show a military response to military activity, because otherwise they'll push further. As you said, they're testing us. Uh, Absolutely. The freedom of of navigation operations clearly are an assertive action. Symbolically speaking, it's very powerful. I'm just not sure whether it achieves anything beyond that, especially because the Chinese are not in a hurry, and so they, they can live with our phone ops. Dr. Zeno Leone, uh, Mike Clark, is it the case that we, the West, have taken our eyes off the ball in relation to China this year because of Ukraine? Or or is it simply that the likes of you and I have have been talking more about Ukraine and we haven't talked as much about China? Well, uh, yes, I mean, we have taken our eyes off the ball because Ukraine is far more immediate to us. But I think it's always the case that the defence establishment hasn't spent that much time thinking about China. I mean, one of the points that is often made in the MOD privately, they say, look, you know, if China is the adversary for the future, the playing ground will not be the South China Sea. The playing ground will be the Middle East and Africa. That's where we're going to compete with China. And the competition with China at the moment, and it is a systemic competition undoubtedly, and a systemic threat, takes place at the at the economic level. You know, we've just passed in last year the National Security and Investment Act, 
which allows the government to call in deals that it thinks may have a security element. And of course, it's got China in mind after the Huawei issue over 5G, after, you know, Sizewell C and Hinkley Point and Bradwell, all the nuclear power stations. So that's the challenge. And um, that challenge is not really a defence challenge the way most of the government sees it. But there has been a a clear message from defence in the integrated review last year, you know, much made of this British defence tilt towards the Indo-Pacific. We saw the carrier strike group in the South China Sea last year. We've not heard much since. Has Ukraine derailed that tilt? Well, I think the tilt was always more economic and opportunistic than anything else. I mean, the point is, you know, if there is a defence element, as with the AUKUS deal, with the you know the deal between uh, Australia, United States, and Britain over submarines and other things, if there is an opportunity to do something, we might. But the fact is, you know, as we've always said, if there was a real crisis in Europe, it's no, there's no question where our defence commitments really lie. And this is the biggest European crisis of our lifetimes. And so it's not surprising that we are devoting a carrier strike group now officially to NATO. I suspect that if we did have two carriers at sea at once, they'd both be somewhere in the Atlantic theatre or Mediterranean theatre. I don't think we'd have one in the Atlantic and one in the Pacific, if we, even if we could operate two simultaneously. So, yes, I think the, the, the effect of Ukraine has been to remind us that we are too small a nation to have defence commitments in two big theatres simultaneously and that our interests in Asia and the Asia-Pacific are interests of an economic and political nature which may have a defence element if opportunity presents itself. But in the middle of a Ukraine crisis and a, a long-term crisis with Russia, which I'm sure is what we're now in, that opportunity is not going to arise very often. Well, let's turn our attention now to the war in Ukraine and events in Europe. If we've learned one thing from that war in Ukraine, it is the importance of artillery on the battlefield. It is not a new lesson, but it's one that is worth relearning over and over again. NATO's biggest artillery exercise, Dynamic Front, has been refreshing skills for troops from 19 countries, including the UK. Rob Olver has been watching at the vast Grafenwehr training area in Bavaria. In Bavaria, NATO's main annual artillery exercise, Dynamic Front 22, features a star. It's the world's most powerful self-propelled howitzer or drivable long-range gun. Germany's Panzer Haubitzer 2000 fires 155mm rounds, accurately hitting targets up to 25 miles away. The same weapon supplied by Germany to Ukraine now pounds Russian positions in a war that poses the biggest risk to European security since 1945. The current conflict is demonstrating the importance of artillery. Brigadier Matt Birch is the senior artillery officer in the British-led Allied Rapid Reaction Corps. It's causing more casualties than any other capability in that battle. Therefore, our ability to come together as NATO, mass those fires, deliver that at the time and place of our choosing, becomes absolutely critical. Welcome to the headquarters of the Multinational Field Artillery Brigade. 55 weapon systems in total and 3,000 personnel from 19 countries, all gathered at America's vast 89-square-mile Grafenwehr training area. Colonel Alex Forbes is commander of the Multinational Field Artillery Brigade. I think it's never been more important to be able to work with other nations, to be able to use common standards, common procedures, 
and to be able to be the, the sum which is greater than the parts. Parts that include a Slovakian rocket battalion working with a US artillery regiment. The Royal Artillery are here too, equipped with multiple launch rocket systems. Two six regiments, 19 Gibraltar battery are from Lark Hill in Wiltshire. And proving on this NATO exercise that language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to a messaging system that all allies can understand and that avoids using radios. It's also one that instantly links commanders with gunners on the ground. In order to work together effectively, we use the Artillery System Cooperation Activity, or ASCA. The battery commander is Major Steph Manning de Gabotier. It's software that enables us to plug all our digital fires in together so that messages can go really quickly from the sensor to the shooter with the minimum delay. Dynamic Front is not only about coordinating different countries' artillery systems. Guns on the ground act in concert with jets in the sky and other capabilities signified by the presence here of the British-led Allied Rapid Reaction Corps. Rob Olver in Bavaria. Well, having the up-to-date skills is one thing, but if you need to use them in anger, you also need the munitions. And the House of Commons Defence Committee has just warned that the UK stockpiles are significantly depleted because of what we've been sending to Ukraine. This is just one of the significant things to have changed since the last defence review was written, just over a year ago, and the MPs say all those changes mean an update needs to be added. Tobias Elwood chairs the committee. No one was expecting us to be able to empty the cupboards of our ammunition and our equipment to support Ukraine in the way that we've done in the past. And that will only increase. We are simply running out of ammunition as well. We've gifted so much equipment to the Ukrainians. Um, we now recognize that there'll be a shortfall were we to take on Russia ourselves. If the amount of ammunition that Ukraine is expending, if we were into war, we'd run out in two weeks. You are just back from visiting Ukraine and its neighbour, Moldova. What did you learn from being in those countries rather than just hearing it from the UK? Firstly, Moldova, they are a neutral country, but they are requesting from Britain the same support we gave to Ukraine back in 2014. Training, bolstering their armed forces, providing equipment and so forth which was actually paramount in helping the Ukrainians hold Russia back when they did, finally did the invasion itself. That is what Moldova is asking for today, because they now realize that they could be next. But on Odessa, you know, historians listening will be aware that this was one of the original four proud, proud cities that were part of the Russian Empire, along with Moscow, St. Petersburg and Warsaw. Russia wants this back. And uh, if they take Odessa, of course, they then isolate Ukraine, make it landlocked, so it'll ruin Ukraine's economy, which is what Russia wants. More critically, it will mean that grain can't get out to the wider world. 40% of African grain comes from Odessa. So that's why I've called for a UN General Assembly resolution to provide the legal top cover for the port to be moved into a humanitarian safe haven and then a coalition of the winning, the UN coalition, to then be able to protect the civilian ships being able to then distribute that critical grain. What was Odessa like as a city while you were there? I mean, very, very nervous indeed. I mean, literally 30, 40 miles away is the front line. I visited a school about five miles away that had been bombed indiscriminately. Every single window of the school had been smashed. You know, the teachers were, were all in tears. Odessa is now growing with refugees that are coming from the front lines from the east. 
and a recognition that if Russia consolidates what's going on in the Donbass, that they will turn their attention west and try and link up their uh, successes along the Black Sea coastline with Transnistria, which borders Moldova as well. So this is all very much a reality. And that's why we need to lean in and help Ukrainians even further. Tobias Elwood, MP. Uh, Michael Clark, uh, Tobias Elwood's talking there about Odessa. The, the, the focus on the ground for Ukraine at the moment seems to be a, a, another port, Kherson. Ukrainians making a, a big push to retake that. U- UK Defence Intelligence saying today that the, the, the Russians in Kherson seem to now be effectively cut off. Yes, the uh, Ukrainians are very successfully now. They've closed the uh, Antonovsky Bridge through a series of strikes. They've used their long-range artillery that we've given them and some of the rocket artillery to put several holes in it. And the holes were very carefully calibrated to actually weaken the bridge enough to prevent heavy traffic going over it. And now it looks as if they've dropped part of it completely. And with that bridge gone, that's the main artery from Crimea into the Hershen area. They've now got Russian troops more or less cut off in that region. They can't reinforce them, although they've tried. A lot of stuff has gone from Russia to Crimea en route to Kherson, and it's not probably not going to get there. We're now looking to see if the Ukrainians can mount a major attack. They say they can. They say they'll have Kherson back by September. We'll see if that's true. But I think that this next big battle is about to begin in the next week or two. News, discussions and analysis. This is Sitrep. Now, amid the political turmoil of this month, as dozens of ministers and then the Prime Minister resigned, you might have missed a significant move in the other direction. Former soldier Johnny Mercer, who quit as Veterans Minister last year, is back in the job. But now it's a job with much more clout. No longer a junior position, Mr Mercer is a member of the Cabinet and on a mission to improve the lives of those who serve their country. This week he visited a specialist research centre at Imperial College working for better help for people who have been injured in explosions. I spoke to him about that research and his new Cabinet role. I'm responsible for the government's actions and accountability on how we make this country the best place to be a veteran in the world by 2028 and obviously it's been a long-term ambition of mine the construct of the office of veterans affairs was always that it would have someone in cabinet who oversaw what they were doing and was able to pull together all the different functions of government to make them work for veterans i'm delighted the prime minister's done that and uh, you know it's key for me that we retain where we are now and make sure we can deliver on our many promises to veterans in this country so what can veterans expect from you what are your priorities for delivering on that mission well look that is a huge um, sort of all-encompassing mission there are clear areas where we need to do better for example entry into uh, healthcare you know really specialist healthcare provision for people with long-term prosthetics and things like that uh, or whether it's making sure op courage works properly in England you know I think the take-up rate is very low in terms of uh, veteran friendly GP surgeries the team have done a great job uh, over the last year but I really want to turbocharge that uh, we need to go from sort of talking about why this country is the best place in the world to be a veteran to actually feeling like that for our veteran community you we're in a more junior version of this yeah. as a as a minister for veterans for two years yeah You left saying that the government had abandoned veterans of Northern Ireland to endless investigations. What do you say to those veterans who are disappointed to see you return to government having made that stand? Are you saying 
that situation is now fixed. Yeah, I don't understand that at all because I left government, I went and campaigned on it, the government's brought forward legislation and we were bringing uh, what happened in Northern Ireland to friends of mine like Dennis Hutchins to a close. So, I mean, that makes no sense at all. That was my objective to achieve that. We've achieved that. I'm honoured to be asked to come back to government to continue this agenda and I look forward to getting on with it. This role is now a cabinet role. Why does it need to be a cabinet role? How much difference do you think that's going to, to make to what you can achieve? So having a place in the cabinet makes all the difference in this role because what you're trying to do is pull together all the different functions of government, whether it's health, department of levelling up, whether it's uh, to do with housing or employment or education, and make those things work for veterans and their families. And the key is you have to be at the top table contributing to that debate and contributing to that decision-making process. That's exactly what our other Five Eyes allies do. Actually, if you look in Australia, they've tried to take it out of the cabinet. It didn't work. They put it back in. This is a serious job and a serious role that we need to take seriously in this country if we're really going to make our veterans feel like this is the best place in the world to be a veteran. We're going to have a new prime minister at the start of September. Are you confident that that new prime minister will want a minister for veterans affairs in their cabinet? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it's, it's my job to make sure that uh, whoever is the next prime minister is committed to maintaining where we currently are on veterans affairs, whether it's a cabinet minister for veterans affairs, whether it's the office for veterans affairs itself, whether it's the legislation in Northern Ireland, we cannot resile from any of those commitments. Whether or not it's me is, is irrelevant. It's more about delivering that outcome for, for veterans. I'm determined we'll get there. It was a manifesto commitment and I'll do everything I can to hold uh, whoever is going to be the new prime minister to account on these issues. Let's talk about being here today at Imperial College, Centre to Study Blast Injuries. What have you seen here and what, what do you hope that you, work you can do yeah. with this centre? Well, look, I, I mean, part of making this the best country in the world to be a veteran is to have really cutting edge solutions to the long term problems from the wars of Iraq and Afghanistan and, and before that, whether it's around prosthetics, whether it's around mental health, whatever it may be. And this, you know, centres like this are extraordinary. Uh, for someone like me who, you know, went through the system myself in 2006, 7, 8 and saw rehabilitation and research into veterans at that time, compared to where we are now, it is a light years apart. This sits alongside your announcement of a, an innovation fund for veterans. What do you hope that will deliver for the future of veterans? Yeah, so the in innovation fund is incredibly important because what we're trying to do all the time, as the science changes, as you know, our understanding of this and, and more technology develops, we want to make sure that what veterans are experiencing is really on the cutting edge uh, of what's available. And so, you know, we've, we've got this £5 million fund that people can bid into and applications are open until the 31st of August to, you know, to look into research uh, uh, projects that, that can actually deliver real change for veterans, particularly those with really complex health needs. There will be people here £5 million for innovation for the future, but actually there are immediate day-to-day -day needs on things like mental health. That money will be better spent right now going into the NHS. Yeah. So, so again, I, I mean, that, that's not correct. There is a lot of money going into mental health in the NHS. You know, £17 million rising to £22 million in 24-25. So there is a hell of a lot of money going into mental health care. It, it's all a balance, whether it's physical health, whether it's mental health, whatever it may be. You did mention though for example that the, the uptake among GPs of, of, of op courage is lower than you would like it to be if you're saying the money's there what is the problem because we do hear anecdotally still veterans having long waits to get access yeah, to look, a lot of it a lot of it is awareness and this is why it's so important the government's now said actually we're going to have a veterans minister in the cabinet 
you know, we want GP surgeries to sign up to become GP friendly. It doesn't cost them any money. And it means that if you're a veteran going into these services, you know that you can get referred into these specific care pathways like Op Courage and that you can and you will probably get better. And that's, you know, that, that's us paying our debt to our veterans beyond just talking about how proud of them we, we are. The Veterans Minister, Johnny Mercer. Michael, it's, it's interesting, Johnny Mercer saying there that all of our Five Eyes allies have for a long time had a veterans minister in cabinet we've only just done it why have we done it differently do we do we have a different culture on this yes i think we do to a large extent you know roger kipling in his poetry used to make the point that you know we we all we all love the tommies tommy this and tommy that until we don't need them and then we forget about them um we have a long history of not really honoring our veterans now that changed in the second part of the 20th century. And the other thing is that we have a very active charity sector. And so a lot of veterans charities grew up, particularly, of course, after 2003, the war in Iraq and then the war in Afghanistan. And I think Johnny Mercer is absolutely right. It, it's not that there's a lack of support for veterans in Britain, but it's very dispersed. In a typical British way, it's all very ad hoc. It needs to be brought together at a high level so that the government can coordinate it. Don't need to spend a whole lot more money on veterans, but we need to coordinate what is out there and so in that respect, yes, I think it's it's about time, and I think he's right, that the government, as it were, got on top of this because the public, I think, is ahead of the government on the correct and better treatment of our own veterans. Professor Michael Clark, thank you, and my thanks to all of our guests. That is all for now. But if you want to hear much more about those MPs' warnings that the Defence Review needs updating, there is an extra edition of BFBS SITREP online now. Among other things that I discussed with Tobias Elwood, he tells me how the extra demands since Ukraine are affecting ordinary servicemen and women. That's online at bfbs.com slash sitrep or wherever you find your podcasts. We are back with another BFBS sitrep next Thursday. For now, though, from me, James Hurst, thanks for listening and goodbye. (laughs) 